you occasionally hear shouts and hollers in the background. Either the revolution has started, or that's Team Snap, celebrating a wonderful year of storytelling, thanks to you. Thank you very much. This past year, our search for the ultimate narrative has taken us to India, to China, to Liberia, to Brazil, to Costa Rica. Snap Judgment has dived underground, and we've rocketed into deep space. And on today's episode, we're going to recount some of our favorite stories from the past year. Welcome to the 2012 Snap Judgment Look Back Special. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Can we go back and do some of the old ones? Can we go back and do some of the old ones? Come on, put your hands together. One of my favorite stories of the year proves that you do not have to leave the border to find the story. Our own Stephanie Fu hopped down to Texas. And Stephanie, Stephanie found the biggest catch of all. In the West Texas desert, the horizon seems to go on forever. It can drive you a little crazy, heading in a straight line for 100 miles and seeing nothing but roadkill. But then, bam. Almost like a shimmering hallucination, I see this oasis. In the middle of barren nothingness, there's a hill covered in oak trees. This is the tiny, tight-knit community of the Davis Mountain Resort. As I pull up to the entrance of the resort, I see an enormous sign. Warning, private residence, all trespassers strictly forbidden. When somebody walks up the door, I won't even say hello, I'll just shoot them, and that's it. Drag your dead ass out of here. That's Joe Rowe. He's lived here for more than 20 years. And he's got this beautiful adobe house. He built the thing himself. And since he prefers to shoot first and ask questions later, it's a damn good thing he was expecting me. When did you first shoot a gun? Probably when I was 10 years old. There's more guns in this house right now than there are people, I guarantee you that. You hear that snap? Okay, okay. Joe is a lot nicer than he'd like you to believe. (laughs) Everyone in West Texas loves this man. No wonder. He greeted me with low-fat, fresh-baked blueberry muffins. The thing is, he's actually got a pretty good reason for owning all those guns. Fifteen years ago, he used them when he got into a showdown to defend his homestead. We built it, and I intend to stay here. I didn't build it to give it to someone else. See, it all started when a stranger rolled into town by the name of Rick McLaren. McLaren had some ideas that didn't sit well with Joe Rowe. You didn't really talk to Rick McLaren, you listened to Rick McLaren. Rick McLaren moved in just down the street from Joe. McLaren was a secessionist who believed that Texas was annexed illegally to the United States, so it should be considered its own republic, the Republic of Texas. And of course, McLaren crowned himself the head of the Republic of Texas. Who in the hell's he decided he's going to just become the head of the Republic of Texas? Do you think that Texas was annexed illegally? Even if there was, it's a little late in the game now. We disagreed over some things philosophically down through the years. Their main quarrel was over the fact that McLaren organized a militia group for the Republic of Texas. He set up a training camp a couple miles down the road from Joe. Dozens of militiamen moved into what McLaren called his Republic of Texas Embassy, and the militiamen practiced military maneuvers, which meant they had pipe bombs, trip wires, and blow up things, and they'd drive up down the road with their automatic weapons. The Republic of Texas even published manuals with instructions for creating homemade bombs and disabling civilians. The community was not happy about this. A lot of the people in the resort are retired, and the last thing they needed was pipe bombs in their vegetable gardens. And as the president of the Homeowners Association, Joe spoke up. And I'm a pretty vocal person anyway, and have a tendency to readily express my opinion about anything, and I didn't like what was going on. Because of this, Joe was on the top of McLaren's hit list. McLaren said that if anybody messed with the Republic of Texas, he would get his revenge. 
But McLaren said an awful lot of things, so authorities didn't pay him much attention. Until one day, somebody did mess with the Republic. A sheriff pulled over a Republic of Texas militiaman. And when he stopped him, he was going to take him to jail on a weapons violation. He had some illegal weapons in his car. The man was taken off to jail. McLaren found all this out by listening to his police scanner. And he lost it. He sent out the order to his men. Seize Joe Rose's house and take him hostage. Seize Joe Rose's house and take him hostage. That's a direct order. McLaren devised a plan to send two men to seize Joe's home, Greg Paulson and Richard Keyes. Paulson was the man in charge, and Keyes was to be his lackey. Joe heard them pull up in his driveway. And people started jumping out of the cars, wearing camouflage clothes and carrying semi-automatic weapons and spreading out around the house. What's going through your head at this point? <laughs> holy, holy <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> And Greg Paulson approached the back door, and he told me, surrender, you're under arrest, we come to take you hostage. But you gotta be insane if you think that you can take Joe Rowe down without a fight. And I said something like, you know, you, you know you're crazy, you know, get your butt out of here. I was on the inside of the door, and he was on the outside out there, and I had my pistol pointed at him, he had his rifle pointed at me, and we had what you call kind of a Mexican standoff there for a minute. Each man waited for the other to make a move. And just then, Joe's dog walked off the porch between the two men. Remember those Republic of Texas manuals? They said, the first thing you do when you invade someone's house is neutralize their pets. And to me, neutralize means kill. So I thought there's my favorite dog walking off the porch. And by the time he said, lay down your weapon, there's more of us than there are you. That was a fact. I could see that. So I said, okay, I will if you won't shoot my dog. He said, okay, so I laid my pistol down, and when I raised back up, he shot me. He shot three times. Joe was hit once with a bullet to the shoulder, and he yelled out, You son of a bitch, you shot me anyway. And that's exactly what I said. <laughs> and that, that, that was my testimony in court. <laughs> and you know what, in retrospect, that's right. He never said he wouldn't shoot me, he said he wouldn't shoot the dog. I guess he'd done what he said he'd be. What's it like to get shot? It hurts. <laughs> it hurts. I thought, damn, this ain't working out very well. <laughs> this ain't the way it works on TV, you know. <laughs> the, the hero's finna get his ass kicked here. Paulson and Keyes shoved their way into the house. As the leader, Paulson ordered Keyes to fill the bathtubs with water in case authorities cut off the water supply. Then, Keyes took his car down to the end of the driveway and shot his own tires out so that the car could be used as a roadblock. Lastly, they took down Joe's Texas flag and put up the flag of the Republic of Texas. It was clear they planned to stay a long time. Joe's shoulder was torn up from the bullet wound, and it looked like he was in bad shape. I was bleeding quite a bit at the time. All that blood really freaked out Greg Paulson. And I think he got to thinking, damn, this old man's gonna die, and I'm gonna be in big trouble. I done killed somebody. But truth be told, Joe was just fine. You know, I had my ass kicked worse than Saturday night in the hockey town. Went back on Sunday for more. <laughs> One hour turned into two, two turned into eight. Paulson spoke on the phone with both McLaren and the Texas police, trying to figure out his next move. In the meantime, the intruders made themselves at home. It's getting close to dark and they're getting hungry and uh, they asked my wife if she had anything to eat. And she said, well, I have some lasagna. And they said, well, we fixed her some? She said, yeah. So she come downstairs and she fixed up a big old huge pan of lasagna and dished up plates full of it and gave it to each one of them. And they chowed down the lasagna. It's true that she cooked them dinner, but Joe's wife was no pushover. Scolded them severely <laughs> about tracking up her house with muddy boots. She had an attitude, and Richard Keyes didn't like that. I don't think he really liked women anyway, and he sure didn't like a strong woman. You, you could tell that by his nature. Keyes was a dangerous character. Richard Keyes, he was just dying to shoot someone. That is the truth. And the first car approached, he begged Greg Paulson to let him shoot him. Keyes even secretly unloaded one of Joe's pistols and laid it on the bar. Then, he kept asking Joe's wife to go to the kitchen and make him something to eat. 
He knew that she would pass the gun every time she walked into the kitchen. Did not doubt my mind what he was hoping that she would take a chance on picking up that pistol so he'd have an excuse to shoot her. But the leader of the mission, Paulson, prevented Keyes from getting too trigger happy because Paulson was cut from a different cloth. Murder was the last thing on his mind. Over the hours he sat in the house, he actually sat down with Joe and talked to him. Over the course of the evening, we talked about how he'd been led astray by Rick McLaren. He was already having second thoughts about what had happened. It become apparent that he, he, really, he really wished he wasn't as deeply involved in, in the situation as he was. And so it became pretty obvious to us that unless something screwed up, they probably weren't going to do any more harm to us. And the best thing we did is just sit here and just hope it played out right. Thirteen hours passed. It was one in the morning before Paulson finally made a deal with the authorities. The police would release the incarcerated Republic of Texas militia man if Paulson and Keyes would leave Joe's house. This sounded good to everyone, but there was one little problem. Richard Keyes had shot the tires out of their getaway car. So then it occurred to him that they're a little short on transportation, okay? So Greg Paulson asked me if he'd use my pickup. He, he asked me. I said, well, I said, what if I say no? He said, I'm going to take it anyway. I said, well, in that case, feel free to use it. <laughs> I said, the keys are in it. I said, wait a minute, what are you going to do with my pickup? He said, I'm going to take it back to where McLaren is. I said, no, don't do that. Driving up back there in my pickup, they'll think you're me. Carol shoot you. And he thought about that a minute. You're probably right. I said, won't you leave at the country store? He said, okay. I said, will you do me a favor? He said, I'll consider it. I said, when you leave the country store, just lock the door and throw the keys in the floorboard. I've got another set of keys. I said, he's okay. That was nice of him. It was. They're just like, sayonara? Like, well, there wasn't no hugging and kissing going on. <laughs> I didn't say, y'all come back now. Nope. Paulson and Keyes sped away. An ambulance arrived and took Joe to the hospital. Soon afterward, the Texas Rangers stormed the Republic of Texas militia camp. Another standoff took place between Texas and the Republic of Texas. But after seven days, McLaren and his troops knew they couldn't hold out any longer. They surrendered, and they were all taken off to jail. In cuffs and on his way to jail, Paulson shuffled past Joe. And he walked by me and he said, good afternoon, Mr. Rowe, how's your shoulder? But he kind of had, a, I guess, a begrudging respect for me in a way. The way that Joe talks about Paulson, you almost sense that that begrudging respect might be mutual. Is there a lesson that you, you took from this whole thing? I should have shot the summons when I had the chance. Well, almost. After going through Republic of Texas correspondence, authorities found out that they had planned multiple terrorist attacks, including plans to fire rocket launchers at the president. And so, in a way, Joe was a national hero. A Texas senator mailed him a certificate of commendation and a Texas flag that had flown over the Capitol. And now, Joe practices his all-American right to bear arms to defend his home. I never go anywhere without a weapon, and I haven't since. He keeps at least one loaded gun in every room of his house and in all of his vehicles. Well, I've got three nine millimeters. One of them's got a laser sight, three fifty-seven Magnum, and a thirty-eight Special. You don't mess with Texas. So, of course, I couldn't leave without taking a self-defense class from the sharpest shooter in the West. Joe handed me a four ten shotgun pistol named The Judge. Just cock it and shoot it. Right there? Yeah. You can get a hold on it, girl. All right. Um, how do I... Just pull? Well, you just wiggle it. Okay. <laughs> I hit the can of Bud Light on my first try. I can't believe I got it. And so, though I like to think that I do all right in Texas, I prefer to ask my questions before I shoot. That morning, a lady locked arms with a shotgun and the pistol rode west with the sun. Now the outlaws of Tombstone and the outlaws forever know that death is the way of the gun. Big thanks to Joe Rowe for setting Stephanie straight. But Joe, if you could call and ask Stephanie to stop shooting target practice in Snap Studios, I'd be mighty obliged. Okay, Snappers, now, in honor of the Look Back episode, we want to recognize that not every story can be squeezed into this episode. 
our own Pat Masini Miller put together a mix using snippets from some of our favorite stories over the past year. Listen now to see how many of those you can recognize. Hit it, Pat. Today we'd like to step it up a bit harder, a bit harder, a bit, bit harder. The guy who I'm about to introduce is one of the best in America. My name is Gary, and I don't do anything. <laughs> the game is called a razzle. Each day I saw Tim, and he would greet me with this slick tongue. I think I love you. And that's when everybody started telling me. She does not share that sentiment. <laughs> and I look like Rick Moranis. <laughs> Whoa, man. Whoa. Everything's zooming. <laughs> Lots of static noise. It sounded great. Congratulations, you're going to the big league. OMG. I, I feel lucky. I do not know how it happened, but I blinked. Blink. And this year, this year, all of us made it to the end. The end. You think you know the stories? Well, even if you miss one, do not fear. We've got all of them ready for you right now at snapjudgment.org. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the 2012 Look Back Special. And when we return, Jamie DeWolf gets locked up. Somebody has a baby, and somebody else finally gets their big break. Almost. When Snap Judgment, the Look Back Special returns, stay tuned. Snap Judgment, the Look Back episode. Where we get to revisit just some of the stories that made 2012 so special for us. Carolyn and Sean Savage, they had three beautiful children. But they wanted one more. They had some difficulties with pregnancy. So they decided to seek the services of an in vitro fertilization clinic. And they crossed their fingers. We thought we're going to go for it, and however it turns out, we'll be okay with that. If it works, great. We'll have four kids. Perfect. If it doesn't work, we're fine with our family the way it is. We went in for that frozen embryo transfer, and we transferred three embryos. Ten days after the frozen embryo transfer, I was scheduled to go and have a blood draw for a pregnancy test, and I waited that day for a phone call confirming. Now, I have to tell you, I knew in my heart I already was. I had all of the symptoms. I just knew it had worked. I, I knew it. I'm already thinking of names. How am I going to set up our house? So when the call did not come, one o'clock passed, two o'clock passed, three o'clock passed, no call. I figured they'd call for sure by the end of the day, so that's why when my husband, Sean, kind of barreled through our door at about four o'clock that afternoon, I was stunned. He said that the doctor had informed him that indeed I was pregnant, but that there had been a mistake, and that they had thawed and transferred the embryos of another couple. So I was indeed pregnant with somebody else's genetic child. I was shocked. 
I think when anyone undergoes some sort of a fertility treatment, you expect one of two things to happen. Either it's going to work and you're pregnant or it didn't work and you're disappointed. The idea that you could be pregnant with somebody else's child never even entered into the realm of possibility for me. The doctor explained that um, he needed to know what our intentions were. Very quickly, within moments of learning of the situation, we, we knew what we had to do. That was care for this child during the pregnancy and do our best we could to protect him or her and then deliver him or her back to his genetic parents um, upon delivery because that's what we would have wanted someone to do for us. I immediately thought, okay, people do this, right? I'm now a surrogate. But what I think is important for people to understand is that that has to be a decision-making process that is well thought out. That didn't happen for us. The enormity of what we were undertaking, it was very, very scary. Pregnancy is not an easy thing. There are moments that you think, I can't believe that I'm just, you know, standing up and going on, but I'm going to get a baby in the end and, and I'm going to get to be a mother. We weren't going to get that. We had to explain why I was going to have a baby and why I wasn't going to come home from the hospital with a baby. I remember one time I was in the grocery store and um, one of the cashiers said to me, you know, is it a boy or a girl? It's a boy. She's like, oh, and, uh, and I would just sit there and smile and I'd just be dying on the inside. And I think the lowest point of the pregnancy was a particular evening where I was quite ill and I just sat in my bathroom and sobbed. I just didn't know how I was going to be able to let this child go. The hospital was tricky. We tried to control it as best as we could, but I also didn't know once they took him from the delivery room if we were going to be seeing him again because his genetic parents never made that promise. I wanted him to know someday that the moment he took his first breath, that the people that were standing in that room were thrilled that he was there and that he was not a burden. He was a gift. He was in the delivery room with me for about 20 minutes when they rolled him from the room. And I remember the door shutting. I remember closing my eyes and thinking, it's okay, it's gonna be okay. At the end of this, everything was gonna work out and be just fine. The year after he was born was probably more difficult than the pregnancy. And that I had not planned for. And so that was tough. And I had to work through that. And um, every time I get an email update or a picture or we get an opportunity to see him, we're reassured that we did the right thing. After Logan was born, my husband, Sean, and I made a decision to have another child. We learned kind of early on in, in my pregnancy with Logan that he would be my last pregnancy um, due to the number of C-sections and just my physical condition. And of course, we had the embryos that we were originally trying to use in the first place. So we knew we had to seek the services of a surrogate, which is the ultimate irony in our situation. <laughs> How often do you find a surrogate looking for a surrogate? I mean, that just doesn't even make any sense. So this past August, our wonderful surrogate delivered 37-week twins to us. We were in the delivery room. It was truly probably the most joyous moment of our lives. It would be foolish for me to claim that I don't think that there's a little bit of karma involved in this. I look at them and I think I wouldn't have them if what happened hadn't happened. Thanks so much to Carolyn and Dean Savage for sharing their story with Snap. 
We're going to have a link to their book, Inconceivable, on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. Okay, so my dear friend was pregnant. Everybody was excited. But then the doctor said, something's wrong. They put her on bed rest. And for my friend, this was not easy. But she was going to do everything she could. They told her not to move. So she didn't move. But then she started having pain, started having these pains. And her water broke. Too early way too early, months too early. But the baby had to come out premature. Mother and child were whisked to a neonatal intensive unit and only parents were allowed to visit. I was not a parent. But the daddy was on the other side of the world trying to find a plane and my friend said, I need someone here. So when the nurse asked me, are you the daddy? Are you the daddy? I told her, yeah, I'm the daddy. And the nurse, she told me to scrub my hands with soap and the special brush before she took me to the incubator. And she looked like a little baby bird, hooked to tubes and wires and monitors, so, so tiny. My friend, the child's mother, took my hand. I told her to go to sleep. Go on to sleep. Are you sure? Go to sleep. She finally left, and the nurses told me that what the baby, what a tiny baby under two pounds really needs is skin-on-skin contact. What can I do? They told me to strip. They set up a tent, an anti-contamination tent, and sent me wearing nothing but my boxer shorts inside. The monitors kept beeping and beeping, rhythmic. The nurse picked up this little baby and her little mouth opened. The monitors went crazy, alarms, red flashing, shrill, loud. I have never been more scared. Then she put that tiny baby on my chest and all those noisy monitors, all that crazy calamity. Calm down. Calm down to a heartbeat. Her heartbeat. Skin to skin, she felt so soft. She looked so beautiful. I thought I had lied when I told the nurses she was mine. I looked down and saw her and knew whatever the biology right then. For that moment, she was mine. And you know what? When I see her now, riding her bike with that big old horsey laugh, And I ask, who's your favorite? I don't care who she says. I don't care because I already know. ever had the good fortune of walking around town next to Snap Judgment's Jamie DeWolf, you're going to find out that a lot of people know this guy. Everybody wants to show him love. He's like the dude who can get everyone on the list, no matter what the list is. And one day, I just asked him, Jamie, how do you know all these people? Jamie told me a story. I listened, and then I asked Jamie to tell that story to you. Perhaps I was blind to the facts Stabbed in the back, I couldn't trust my own Just a bunch of dirty facts Will I succeed? Never know it, never know it And hope it's broke, try to focus But I can't see And in my mind, I'm a blind man doing time Look to my future, cause my past is all behind My absurd poetry career has taken me from Moscow, Russia To doing writing workshops for kindergarten classes But then there was the day I was asked to perform at San Quentin Penitentiary. Our first performance was canceled due to what they called a small incident. 
I had to read the newspaper the next day to discover it was a full-scale riot with multiple stabbings. A few weeks later, and our performance writing workshop was finally allowed. The rules were simple. You had to submit to a background check and couldn't wear any red or blue. So I decided to go Johnny Cash style and wear all black. It was four slam poets and my performance partner, Jeff. At the gate, the guards stopped us and had us sign a no-hostage negotiation contract. He explains, if we just happen to be kidnapped by a convict, the state would not barter for your life. This is for your safety, he told us. That way, it's not worth it to them, you know? You're not a pawn piece to be traded. He was required to tell us this. He was not required to help us relax. Spread them. Now, it's hard to act like you're cool as cucumbers when the man standing next to you has two guns strapped to his waist. He had a two-foot-long steel baton, wrist cuffs, and a pepper spray can the size of a 40-ounce dangling from his belt. I don't even have a pen on me, because they confiscate those at the gate. They say the pen is mightier than the sword, but in here, you can't even bring in paper copies of poems. They have to print those themselves and count every single copy. Every paper clip, every piece of paper has to be accounted for. Even the poems I'm bringing him can be wadded up, burnt with wax, and sharpened into a makeshift shank. Words can truly be weapons here. The first gate was so massive, it was hard to believe a tank would survive driving through it, and the guards led us two more after that until we were inside the prison. We walked into a garden that would have been pretty until the guard nodded to the right and said, and then there's the row. Death Row. It was hard to believe that a hundred feet from where I was standing, Scott Peterson and the Night Stalker were sitting in cells getting fat and gray waiting for a state needle. The guard led us down to the yard, a massive expanse that stretches out to the sea where you can see the Golden Gate Bridge shimmering through the fog. Hundreds of prisoners are in the yard lifting weights, playing tennis and football. Two pale pasty guys in blue are leering at our troop. There's three other guys with close-shaved heads who stop strutting and stare at me, whispering in their leader's ear. Something suddenly hits me hard in the head. I flash white, think of palms sharpened into knives, and I instinctively move towards a guard, then look down to see a tennis ball bouncing at my feet. The guard says, What's the matter, you nervous boy? Nah, I'm cool, I say. They lead us into the literacy classroom and tell us our audience will be there in 10. And that's when I realize I'm no Johnny Cash. I feel like I'm about to dry heave into a trash can. So Jeff and I start drilling our poem over and over. And then there's this guy who comes up. His hair is in a brown ponytail. Looks like he's younger than both of us. And he says, what's up, guys? You guys going to do some music or something? I said, nah, we... We do, like, performance, uh, you know, like poetry, theater, comedy, that kind of thing. We're going to do a duet. says, oh, you know, I used to play music, you know. You guys like Danzig? Yeah, I like some Danzig. I love Danzig. He says, you ever seen him live? I said, nah, man, I wanted to. Have you? He says, well, sort of. You know, I went to a show in San Diego. I don't know. I got really drunk in the parking lot and got into a fight with this guy. And, and I stabbed him and, and he died. Whoa, that's, uh, that's cool. So what's cool about that? I mean, no, I mean, nothing, nothing. I mean, you know, Danzig's cool. He says, all right, guys, well, you better rock it, and sits down. The prisoners file in. There's 60 of them in blue, and it's the real deal you've seen in every movie. A guy's got swastikas tattooed on his cheek, and he's sitting next to black Muslims wearing dashikis. Now, Jeff is Jewish, but I'm more freaked out by the swastika than he is. The last place I want to bomb is at San Quentin Penitentiary. The order of performers is random, and we get called first to do our duet. We go up to the front and start it how we normally do. Well, this here is a ditty about your first step into hell. And we go full force into it. The first minute, I'm trying to pretend I'm on any other stage. And I'm in Moscow, I'm in New York, I'm in Oakland. But the guy with swastika tats is staring at me. I swear to God, he hasn't blinked once. And I find myself meeting his eyes until he breaks 
into laughter, pounding his desk until the whole room is roaring and I realize, thank God, this is just another crowd. Every punchline is hitting like they do in bars and, and in theaters, but harder because these guys have been waiting all day for something to laugh at. And we're killing it. Every line about suicide attempts, meth addiction, crazy girlfriends, survival by chance. Shut off my phone. And this poem is dedicated to anybody who's ever had to steal diapers. Anybody's ever had to sleep uneasy to sirens. To everybody who goes home to a vampire at the, the end, end of the, the day. day. And I blow a kiss to every roach and, and raise, raise a toast to, to Terror Street and Agony Way. We finish our duet to a standing ovation. As we go off stage and catch our breath, a prisoner wearing a hairnet comes up and says, Yo, you guys killed it. I always loved that piece. I say, What? What, have you heard it before? I said, Yeah, man, I saw you guys perform it at the Starry Plow. It's me, Lyrokinesis, remember? Lyrokinesis? Then I do recognize him. From a year back when he had cornrows and flashy clothes. He was putting a show together and he asked if we could perform, but I was already booked that night. I remember telling him, next time, but just let me know. I never heard from him, and now I know why. I want to ask him why he's here, but you can't do that. Their sentence already says too much. But I'm still in show mode. I want to invite him to an after party, want to give him a flyer or something. He says, yo, man, you guys coming back or what? I say, well, if they'll have us, yeah. But for now, I got some stuff recorded. Maybe I could send you a CD or something? He says, nah, they don't let me get those. But you guys ever on the radio? Because I get that. And back then, I wasn't. So I said no. But I am now. And if you're listening, Lyrokinesis, this one is for you. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. Remember, if you fight authority, authority always wins. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the 2012 Look Back episode. And when we return, we're going to find out what happens when fame is so close you can just taste it it tastes delicious when Snap Judgment continues stay tuned Listening to the Snap Judgment 2012 Look Back Special from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington. And as you know, just wanting something, just wanting something does not make it happen. You gotta work it. Our next story has both elements. Yes, they wanted something. And yes, it had been worked. All these fellas needed was just a little bit of pixie dust. My name is David Bortnick, and I'm a professional hip-hop dancer. 
My name's Ryan Curran, and I am a professional hip hop dancer. I am the professional hip hop dancer. I was 18 when I moved to Los Angeles, and I moved down because I wanted to do dance as a career. And I would occasionally go up and join him and go take class at Millennium Dance Complex. And the dance studio was enormous. Huge. Justin Timberlake would go around there. Britney Spears was there a lot. Missy Elliott. Be everyone you know, Janet Jackson to Madonna and all everywhere in between. So I just finished class, and this woman came and approached me and said... You know, my name's Dee Dee. I saw you in that class. I love your look. I think you're an awesome dancer. I have this daughter, Jay, who's an amazing vocalist, and we're looking for backup dancers. Would you be interested? And of course, I was like, well, yeah, I'm interested. And she, so she took me to her car, played the demo. So after I listened to the demo, I was like, wow, this girl can sing. This is gonna this is the next Christina Aguilera right here. Called up Dave. I was like, this girl's no joke. Like she is the business, professionally produced beats, quality vocals. This is the real deal. Hell yes, we wanna be a part of this. We're in. This was our big break. Drums. Jay's mom, Dee Dee, was Jay's manager. Dee Dee was a quick talker. She had a lot to say. Um, she would be in there telling us, oh, that looks good or that looks bad or I hate it or whatever. And she just seemed unforgiving and she was ready to do whatever it took to make her daughter a star. One, two, three, four. We would show up like an hour early. Anything they gave us, we were just trying to dance it as hard as we possibly could. Rehearsal three times a day, doing photo shoots for their little promo stuff. Like, whatever they want, do it. You're, you're working for them. One night we come to rehearsal, and she says, Randy Jackson just called me. He wants to have dinner at the Cheesecake Factory. Do you guys want to go? And Randy Jackson was very, very big at the time. A judge on American Idol, the major player down in Hollywood as far as producing goes. And we were both just like, great. Then we get in our car, we're like, oh my God, we're going to see Randy Jackson. Like, (laughs) (laughs) We all pull up to the restaurants right in downtown Hollywood. Dee Dee brings us up and introduces us one at a time. We all get to shake his hand. What's up, baby? What it is? What it is? Yeah, it was all pretty surreal. It was like, here he is. I just touched him and he's saying nice things and we're super stoked i mean i instantly went to ooh, what could i buy with a hundred thousand dollars how much are we gonna make on our first european tour and that's what you always hear about in hollywood is you gotta be at the right place at the right time meet the right person and that's how it happens and i was like for me i just showed up to a dance class and bam now i'm the next christina aguilera's backup dancer like i'm gonna be set for life So, Dee Dee made it pretty upfront that we were not going to be paid until a record deal was signed and that every, we were investing in this project. For sure. We understand. We're helping build this and, and we'll get it in the, you know, on the back end. A month passed and then two months passed. We put all this time in now. It's been like six months. So it's starting to really hit me financially. I'm like barely getting by, literally like sleeping wherever I can on friends' floors. Then we start going, okay, well, if you want us to invest in it, we need some reassurance that if she gets a record deal tomorrow, you're not just going to ditch us. So we start talking about contracts. And instantly she's like, you, what, you don't trust me? We're, I thought we were friends. I thought we were becoming like a family. Families don't need contracts. And Ryan's instantly like... Yeah, but I'd still like a contract. I don't, I don't even, I can't even. Dee Dee storms out of the room and we're all like, what's going to happen next? And she comes back and says, okay. Okay, a record exec from Disney is going to come watch us and it's a really big deal. We have to be perfect. Okay, it's go time. Like, give it all you got. So we went and performed for the big record executive at Disney. Everybody tells me that it's so hard to make. 
they were really impressed. We did awesome. Everyone was perfect. And we killed it. Yes. We murdered it. Murdered it. And we finish, and the guy looks at all of us, and he's like, you know, we really like your sound. You're really an amazing singer, but you sound too much like Christina Aguilera, and we don't think we can sell you like this. So are you willing to work with us and, like, put a tweak on it so it's more original? And Jay just loses it. Just, like, temper tantrum, just screaming at him, storming out, slamming doors, yelling at her mom, like, how could you possibly let this happen? This is my art. This is my music. D comes back, Jay's mom, and and says, no, we're not going with them. We're better than them. Like, we got other things. We're out of here. We're like, what's the deal? Why the hell did you not take that deal? Like, we've put in six, seven months worth of time now. And, like, you keep telling us we get paid when you make it and you're turning down the the making it contract. Like, uh, uh, Dave, grab your stuff. Let's get out of here. So we left and we proceed to hit the worst traffic jam. Just brought up everything that has ever been wrong with the situation. And we're ranting in the car to each other. We're totally venting, just letting out everything that we need to say. So I'm telling Dave, they have to give us money or we just go. How much should we ask for? I don't know, a million dollars? <laughs> we should ask for something, though, because this has been crazy. It's, yes, this is, this is... She's absolutely out of her mind. Dee Dee is a crazy... Dee Dee is a crazy, crazy woman. Then her self-obsessed daughter... Who does not know her left from her right. Earth to Jay, you sound like Christina Aguilera. Change it up. We already got a Christina Aguilera. Change Change it it up. up. What's the one good thing we've gotten out of it is a dinner with Randy Randy Jackson. Jackson. So... As we're just totally ranting and venting to each other, I look down at my phone and it's ringing and it's Dee Dee. And I pick it up and she says, You should really watch who you pocket dial on your phone. I heard everything you just said. And she hung up. And then Dave looks at me and his eyes are wide and he says, Apparently, you just pocket dialed Dee Dee. And she heard everything. Like, it's over. So we go back to my place and uh, we go to sleep, totally thinking we're done with it. And the next morning, I wake up to a phone call and it's Dee Dee. And she's not angry and I'm kind of confused. And she goes, David, I just want you to hear what I heard. And then she plays back this message. And because of the way the phone was positioned, all you can hear is Ryan. And that's it. And... I have this flash, like, oh, I could totally mend this right now. So I say, Dee Dee, you heard that out of context. You didn't get to hear what I was saying, and it changes everything. And she's like, oh, what were you saying? And I lost it. Dee Dee, I said that you, you are the problem. It's not the record executives. It's not the voice. You. You treat your daughter like a commodity. You have stolen hours and hours of my life. Time I will never get back. And you should be ashamed of yourself. (laughs) And then suddenly I heard another voice on the phone and it was Jay. And suddenly I hear Jay say, David, why are you yelling? What's going on? And I said, run. Run as far away from your mother as you possibly can. Run. Run. And I hang up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) And I walked higher that day. I walked prouder. And I applauded him. It was awesome. Special thanks to David Ortnick and Ryan Curran for sharing their story with the Snap. And don't worry about David and Ryan. They're doing just fine. Ryan teaches and performs out of Reno, Nevada. And David just opened a top-of-the-line dance studio in Santa Cruz, California. We'll have links to all their projects on our site, snapjudgment.org. 
That piece was produced by Pat Masidi Miller, who's made quite a name for himself singing Christina Aguilera tunes on the street corner. I'm a genie in a bottle, baby. You gotta rub me the right way. Get out of here, you freak. It's about that time. You've reached the end of the day's Snap Judgment installment, but not to worry. Full episodes, pictures, movies, stuff available on snapjudgment.org. Facebook makes no sense without Snap. No sense at all. Our Twitter handle is snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by myself and a community of artisans too wondrous and magical even to name completely. Let me at least give thanks to the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Did you hear that? You hear that? Pat Masini Miller has the beats. And the day I hired Stephanie Fu is the day I proved I am wise beyond my years. Anna Sussman, trust everyone. Lindsay Gorio is trustworthy. Julia DeWitt eats everything she shoots. Nick Vanderkoek has officially been certified as an artistic genius. And Will Abina has been unofficially certified as an artistic genius. You're a genius to me, Will. Now, have you ever stood and waited in a cornfield all night in the cold, in the rain, because someone promised a UFO was going to show up guaranteed? (laughs) You never did that? Well... The Corporation for Public Broadcasting wouldn't have done it either. And they've asked me to get to the bottom of these anonymous letters. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media and hiding the public media in a cornfield and spreading rumors about UFOs. PRX.org. And now, know this. This is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could stop showering, throw out an unkempt beard, appear highly confused on nightly talk shows, stop wearing pants, and when the authorities finally come to ask you a few questions, you could tell the world that the joke was on them and to watch out for your new comedy special on DVD. And even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is NPR.